You're listening to the Film Marketing Academy podcast, the audio series dedicated to helping filmmakers create better film marketing campaigns faster. Join your host, Pascal Fintoni, for what promises to be an exciting and intriguing voyage of discovery filled with advice, stories, and film marketing ideas. Thank you for tuning in. And now, on with today's episode of the Film Marketing Academy podcast. So, Roger, in 1999, the world came across some rather concerning news over over the web and sometime in printed publications, which read as follows. In October of 1994, three student filmmakers disappeared in the woods near Bucketsville, Maryland, while shooting a documentary. A year later, their footage was found. And of course, we're going to talk about the Blair Witch Project. Was this the first example of found footage filmmaking, Pascal? I wonder whether it was, but it is another of those iconic, just um, genre-inventing, breaking uh, flashes of utter brilliance, isn't it? (laughs) Um, I mean, I'm surprised it's taken us so long to get this one into the podcast because actually I always thought at the time that the marketing for this was brilliant and of course I was a a lot um, earlier stage in my marketing career at that time so perhaps wasn't as um, appreciative of marketing brilliance as I am now uh, nearly 20 years more than 20 years later but the way that they built up the anticipation for the film for months and months in advance of its actual launch, even to the going to the extent of creating a documentary about, right. the, yeah. about the characters in the film. I mean, in reality, that documentary was, was part of part of the film, wasn't it? You almost had to have watched it before you went to see the film. But that on its own, I remember thinking at the time, wow, you've actually made a documentary about fictional characters in order to sell a film about those fictional characters. I just remember thinking this is such genius. You just can't not go and see the film to find out what it's all about. You're absolutely right. And that's what it felt like. It was a genius in terms of indie filmmaking. I mean, ultimately, the life of a content marketer will mirror and echo the the trials and tribulations of an indie filmmaker. Never enough time, never enough money, wish you, you had more resources, and yet you have to create content that's going to engage the audience. And then add on to that an ingenious marketing campaign, which frankly, by the time they got picked up by some of the, some of the big distributors, the job was done. I mean, I know that the big distributors will claim they put lots of money, but by that time you know it it was working and there was a growing growing audience for it what is interesting so this was released in october 1999 which is um i remember because it was a winter i remember seeing this in a winter which i think helped with the whole atmosphere watching this film but of course it'd been released early on in the year in the u.s and that shows again this kind of indie filmmaking where sometimes it takes a long time to get the release and to get the momentum going compared to other blockbusters but it is one of the most successful indie films of all time, and also made named like Eduardo Sanchez is now you know the, the go-to authority for indie filmmaking, together with his colleague Daniel Merrick. And and you're right, the 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 audacity 
of the marketing, the 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 chickiness and sometimes the true guerrilla filmmaking of you know being borderline, you know, not quite legal and moral, but you know, it, it still works and people would find out at the end that it was all part of creating an experience which was beyond the film watching it in a journey. So going on the website, go, finding out that um, the documentary and so on, it was such a rich experience. But, but also for me, it was kind of thinking, this was the year of the Matrix, Roger. This was the year of The World Is Not Enough. This was the year of Three Kings. I mean, uh, big, big movies. Indeed, uh, from the horror point of view, The Haunting, the remake of The Haunting had been released and was not as successful as The Blair Witch Project because I think the audience then wanted to make this a success for the creators as well. Yeah, and, and I do find myself thinking that it, it was genuinely possible to go to the cinema and see the Blair Witch Project film <laughs> without having immersed yourself in any of that pre-publicity, without having watched the fake documentary, without having been to the website. And and it would still have it would still have been a standalone film and you could enjoy it and I'm 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 sure it would have still scared the pants off people who watched it. But just think about how much more immersive and frightening it was knowing the backstory, mm. having been wound up by the documentary and being intrigued by what was on the <laughs> website. The two in, I mean, it, it almost, I, I did almost think that when I went to see it at the cinema, maybe they should have shown the documentary as well, then had an intermission, then shown the film. But then I decided, no, 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 no. You come to the cinema to see the, the, the film itself, but you can't not watch and take part in all the preamble that goes with it and my memory of, of the film was oddly that it was filming in such a way that you know on one hand if it'd been anything any other storyline you think this is shocking filmmaking this is terrible but actually it was adding to the credibility or to to the alleged no stories uh, and i think you're right whilst uh, i don't think historically it's a first fan uh, footage genre it's reignited the interest and then after that we've had all sorts from blockbusters like uh, cloverfield and and more from a film production point of view we now know that this was filmed in eight days because i saw they could afford literally in terms of catering and i think that's probably as much as the uh, actors could put up with in terms of being left in a cold wood uh, with half a script and because what eduardo sanchez and daniel did on occasion was created surprises to have genuine genuine reaction from the actors which is um borderline bullying but of course we got the results for it and and of course the effort was in, into post-production but they ended up with 20 hours of footage and the agony because you know that all too well roger the agony to go from 20 to just nine and a half must have been something yeah and and i do remember thinking that maybe the edit wasn't I think it needed to have that found footage look. So it had to lots of cuts, you know, almost very haphazard in nature. I do remember thinking maybe it wasn't quite as frightening as it deserved to be. And maybe that's because they made a lot of play, if I remember rightly, about sounds mm. in the background and maybe the, the sound of voices carrying through the woods or the sound, I can't remember exactly what it was. But I do remember at the time thinking, I think they could have made more out of the sounds. They could have made it more frightening because sometimes I couldn't actually hear what it was that they were supposedly frightened of. And again, some of the jump cuts were so severe that I sometimes didn't really know what was actually going on. Um, but again, in hindsight, you know, 
it, it was the nature of the beast. It was the nature of the film, mm, and I think it, probably, it was better for it. Uh, but there were a few times, oh, goodness me, I just have no idea what's going on here. It is certainly a film for people who have not seen it before, where have to watch it again, where you have to play along. You know, you, yeah. you have to let yourself care about the story because by the by the time we get to the final frame of the film, I was absolutely terrified because I'd allow myself to be carried by, by the story. As we left the cinema, I could have people saying, that was a lot of rubbish. And, <laughs> and I think if you don't allow yourself to essentially you know, disconnect with the reality, of course, like most films, you're going to think um, it's, it's utter rubbish. For me as well, uh, what was interesting is 1999 was the beginning, if you think about it, where equipment was becoming less and less expensive. I, I've got a feeling that that's when I maybe start to have ambitions to get into film productions and video production with more gusto that, than ever before. But also 1999, the internet was a very, very different place. I mean, people still use Yahoo and Lycos and Ask Jeeves. So I think Ask we need to remember Jeeves. that as an achievement to create maybe one of the first viral campaign when it comes to an indie film. <laughs> Yeah, well, I mean, it was, wasn't it? It was the first internet. It was the first indie type success of found footage film, and it was genuinely the first film that went viral on the internet, where the internet was actually an integral part of what made it successful. Absolutely. So let, let, let's explore that. So we know that uh, using the chronology again historically. The official website was launched in June 1999. As a reminder, no one saw the film before January, sorry, the June 98, I beg your pardon, Roger, for the website. Yeah. The film premiered to a small audience in January 1999. So there was, there was a lag, and during which time, almost like someone would do for a role-playing game type things, they created a website with essentially uh, content that was fictional, but that looked very real. You know, they had that kind of newsreel style for interviews using kind of handheld camera. They had a chronology of the legend of the, the witch, which was, of course, completely made up, and so on and so forth. But when they obviously went for the premiere at the Sundance Film Festival, they had flyers given to the audience uh, asking people to, if you found our missing or deceased, you know, um, kind of uh, actors, please let us know. It, uh, yeah, and fascinating. I mean, newsreel-style interviews and police reports and stuff like that. But giving out the flyers, I mean, I wonder whether anybody was genuinely <laughs> taken in by this and actually thought, you know, there are genuinely four people out there missing. Um, you know, may, may, I wonder whether it actually resulted in any sightings and, and people actually re ringing the police up and say, you know those four kids that are missing? I think I've just seen them in the, in, uh, the woods over there. Uh, you know, possibly a little bit of a uh, Orson Welles' War of the Worlds moment going on there yeah, yeah, where so fact and fiction might just get a little bit blurred. It was close to the edge, and certainly for the first year of the film being released in 1999, I would say, if you went on the AMDB, according to a movie historian, the actors were listed as missing or presumed dead. <laughs> <laughs> Again, it all—it was all part of the narrative, wasn't it? Mm -hmm. All part of the and 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 the same thing about the website materials of the act you know the actors who were the police and investigators giving testimony, casework childhood photographs of the actors and uh, it was it was so well planned really and, and and so much more than just a film and that almost puts to shame 
blockbusters that, that we were aware of. I mean, it has some, some do you remember when we, we reviewed uh, The Martian and we spoke mm -hmm. about how they actually had some uh, fake logs from, from the uh, astronauts and so on? Uh, there's some, some echo of that. But uh, I just love, again, the... Um, you know the the cheekiness of typical indie filmmakers to try and find ways to make the headlines, and of course, the moment newspapers um, caught on to the story, and um, that was it, and that's when the distributors came in. But uh, we know that the people at um, Burkittsville were not uh, well; they were split. Um, people owning restaurants and the likes were very pleased to see all the people turning up to either try and pretend they were looking for the missing um, kind of filmmakers, or indeed just to, to have um, I don't know the selfies in '99. But um, there were some split uh, kind of views uh, views on that, and I did wonder whether you know did it help for them to use a real town or would it have been wiser to actually use a fictional name for the town because uh, i'm sure the locals were not impressed to see all those uh, kind of nerdies you know turning up yeah and, and and coming back to the documentary which was obviously released mm. before the film i think they call it a mockumentary don't they because yeah. it was it was all f a documentary based upon fictional events but that for me was the genius yeah. i always think of Blair Witch Project as the documentary and the film. Not just it was never ever just the film for me. They they went hand in hand, and you know you had to watch the documentary in advance of watching the film. I I agree, and and for me it's also the story. So the film is finished and is shown in January nineteen ninety nine. Hey, just taking time. It's just going through. It's and then it's picked up by Artisan Entertainment and a few mm -hmm. other big guns. And then in July 1999, so literally six, seven months later, the curse of the Blair Witch Project is released on Sci-Fi Channel and then goes mm -hmm. completely viral, I think you can use the term, which means that then the producers and, of course, the investors are happy to re-release the film in the US in the summer of 1999 and then we'll get it in the UK in, um, in October. So that movie had an entire year of visibility, do you mean mm. no, normally blockbusters they need to make money at the first weekend or two and then eventually it just dies off and in this case essentially people talk about the blowish project for the entire year yeah and what's interesting is that they did a remake of this film mm. quite recently and I, I, I can't honestly say that it added anything to me from the original experience and they certainly couldn't replicate and didn't even try to replicate any of the the build-up and any of the, the the documentary for example and and all the content that went with the original film which made me think why bother mm. why bother do you know what was interesting so i saw the you could call it the official sequel to the beverage project which was okay because it gave you more insight into the witch itself the entity but i think the first one was so good because you had no clue and the other thing that I think worked well with uh, the first film is, of course, this iconic kind of stickman figure that they use as part of most uh, uh, identity of sort, but also it was featured by dangling on the trees and so on, but this kind of very strange stickman figure that they used that was part and part, I think, the language of the film. Absolutely, yeah. And it's an iconic logo. It's an iconic mm. logo. So we've got a good example, not only of content, but of branding as well. So you're saying that people are spending you know, all that money on logo, they should just stick sticks together. Sticks together. <laughs> Something, well, keep it simple, Pascal. You know what I always say yeah. about keeping things simple. So 
I feel like watching this film again. I've not seen The Bloach Project for quite some time because I would argue I remember it so well. But also maybe to your point, Roger, I'm thinking, oh, do you know what? There's nothing like the first time. The first time on the big screen you see this film till the very end, you kind of go, my goodness, what have I just seen? But it'd be lovely now that we've reviewed it in, in some fashion and spoke about marketing, it'd be lovely to um, to go back. And now, like all films, it's had its kind of, you know, uh, release in DVDs and Blu-rays and so on. I'm told there is a special edition with an extra mm -hmm. seven minutes of, mm -hmm. of uh, fan footage, whether that's going to make a, a big difference. But I think you're right. Uh, is the way to watch this, to your point, watch The Curse of the Blair Witch Project first, the mockumentary, and then immerse yourself into the story itself of The Blair Witch Project? I, I think that's absolutely the way to do it. And the, the mockumentary is on the DVD and the Blu-ray as well. Mm, smashing. Well, viewers, listeners, you have your homework for this weekend. Have you seen The Blairish Project? Have we missed any of the marketing genius moments from this, uh, the most successful indie films of all time? Do let us know. Roger Edwards, thank you so much for joining me for episode 27 of Two Geeks and a marketing podcast. It's been a pleasure to go through the six segments with you uh, as always. To our viewers and listeners, please let us know how we can add to those segments. Do send your suggestions in terms of content to review, apps to comment on, and of course, films to add to film marketing segment. Until next time, go out there and make sure your marketing is done right. I was Pascal Pintoni, and he was Roger Edwards. Take care now. Thank you for listening to the Film Marketing Academy podcast, the audio series dedicated to helping filmmakers create better film marketing campaigns faster. For more information about our film marketing consultancy and training services, go to filmmarketingacademy.com and book your free discovery video call. And if you haven't already, don't forget to subscribe and follow your host on social media for more updates. 